Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of lies, seared in their own conscience with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women, On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of the believers. Prescribe the teaching of these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself to be an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains... With these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both of yourself and for those who hear you.
are in Colossians 2. I am a great advocate for the whole of the Bible. I adhere to the uh, phrase that grew out of the Protestant Reformation, tota scriptura, all of scripture, but also only scripture. I don't like listening to men be creative with the Bible. I don't like listening to people make stuff up and then blame it on the Bible. That sort of thing is something that Paul also had to deal with. In his day, it was known as Gnosticism. It was theology that was heavily influenced by philosophy and by the ideas and the creativity and the traditions of men. One of the pitfalls of preaching sovereign grace is that people will get the impression that what you're really preaching is a form of antinomianism and that what you're really saying, what I'm really advocating here, is that your behavior doesn't matter. There is an entire branch of Christianity that preaches that exact thing. All they concentrate on week after week after week is the portions of the Bible that talk about salvation by grace. And they emphasize grace. And that's great. We should emphasize grace. I'm all for emphasizing grace. But they fall into the ditch of emphasizing grace to the exclusion of the fact that God also has a standard for his people an expectation for his people. And so if you're going to read the whole Bible, all of the Bible, if you're going to stand toe-to-toe with everything the Bible says, then you have to also recognize things like we're going to read this morning where Paul has just laid out salvation by grace through faith in no uncertain terms. He has already said that we are complete in Christ. As I've mentioned repeatedly, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ perfected forever all those that he sanctified. And you can so overemphasize the completeness of the finished work of Christ and salvation by grace that you never get to the other parts of the Bible where you tell people that God also expects his people to be different than the world. And Paul is going to yet again say that in very clear terms here. And so I want to emphasize it this morning. But the pitfall on the other side of the road is if you emphasize behavior, if you spend all your time emphasizing how you should act as Christian people, then you can tend toward legalism. And people will accuse you of legalism. And so it's difficult sometimes to walk theologically down that center lane where you're not falling into the ditch on either side, where you're not antinomian, but you're not legalist. Because the Bible teaches salvation by grace through faith, and then your responsibility because God has saved you by his grace. And so we have to be willing to teach both sides of that equation. Now, Paul is going to base his argument here on what we looked at last week. And I'm sure you remember every single detail that I laid out for you last week. No? (laughs) Okay. He's going to base it on the fact that we were buried in baptism in the likeness of the death of Christ, that he died physically and then was in the grave, and then came out of the grave. And Paul draws an equation between the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our own Christian baptism, where we are put under the water in the likeness of the death of Christ. And if we stayed under the water, we would likewise perish physically. But then we don't bring ourselves up out of the water. The person doing the baptizing is the one who brings us up out of the water 
a type of resurrection, and then we are to walk in the newness of life, just like Christ rose to life immortal, a life that is changed. We are also to rise, to change, to live differently, to walk after the course of our resurrection spiritually. All of that is typified in baptism. And Paul says, when you go through that baptism, that is part of the circumcising of your flesh, where Christ is cutting away at you all those fleshly things that used to rule your life, that used to determine who you were and what you were like. And so if you have been baptized in the likeness of the death of Christ, Paul then argues, so then reckon yourself, your mortal body, your flesh, your earthly desires, reckon that to be dead. Because you, like Christ, died. Therefore, the body of your flesh and all the sin that goes with it is dead. And you're raised to newness of life and you are walking in the spiritual renewal that Christ himself has given you. And he bases even that argument on the fact that your flesh, the way you are, the way men naturally think, the human depravity of the flesh, makes God angry and wrathful. We know that because we have the whole Old Testament to read. The children of Israel, in their disobedience, in their rebellion, in their not following the law and the standards, the dictates that God laid out, God then punished them because of it. They suffered the wrath of God because of that fleshly behavior. And if we know anything about God, we know that he doesn't change. And so Paul is going to argue Put away that old man and those sinful deeds. Be different because you've been raised in this newness of life. And after all, your fleshly activity brings about the wrath of God. So even though God has delivered you from his wrath, even though you are not appointed to wrath, you know that that kind of behavior brings about the wrath of God. In other words, God don't like it. So if he doesn't like it, and you're in him through Christ, should you still behave according to the things that God hates? No. Should you still be doing the things that God is wrathful toward? Yeah. Well, no. So that is all part of Paul's argument in favor of walk differently. And as we've looked through the Bible, verse by verse, Old Testament and New, We've seen this over and over and over again, whether it's God giving his law and telling the Israelites, you're different because I chose you out of all the nations of the earth, therefore walk like this, act like this. And then we see it in the New Testament. Because you are redeemed, because you are saved, because you are the chosen before the foundation of the world, walk like it, act like it. That's why language of obedience to the faith is a phrase that Paul uses frequently. Because the faith actually does have requirements of you. So, balanced Christianity, balanced biblical Christianity, is not afraid to say salvation by grace through faith. Oh, thank God he did it all. He made us complete in Christ. Great! But it also says, now act like it. And we've got to be willing to say both sides of that equation. Make sense? Yes. yes. I'm going to start reading. Well, collectively, we're all going to start reading. At verse 16 of Colossians 2, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
the things that Paul listed that we went into fairly extensively last week, these were things that had to do with the law. These were things that God had dictated to the children of Israel. And then Paul said, because of the new covenant, the new, higher, better covenant, and the change of priesthood, and the fact that Jesus took the law, which was against us, and then he nailed it to his cross, and he took it out of the way. That is all based on actual stuff that actual God actually wrote to the actual children of Israel. This morning, we're going to get into the traditions of men. The things that men like to say are religious. The things that men will impose on you as if this is going to please God because they came up with something. So Paul is not only talking about how free from the law we are because Christ has taken the law and nailed it to his cross and taken it out of the way, but we are also free from the opinions and the manufactured creativity of other human beings who want to impose their religious standards on us. In other words, it's Christ, it's all Christ, it's only Christ, and nobody gets to lay anything else on you. So Paul created two categories here, which is why I've taken two weeks to talk about the two categories. Last week we talked about those legal requirements that Paul argues Christ has taken out of the way. And so he could say, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in respect of a feast or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And then he says those things were all just shadows, but it was Christ who is the substance who's casting the shadow. And so let no one keep on defrauding you of your reward, of your prize, by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking their stand on visions that they have not seen, inflated without cause by their fleshly minds, and not holding fast to Christ, the head, from which the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Okay, thus endeth the introduction. Is that a pretty good reminder of what we learned last week? Okay, so now Paul says, if you have died with Christ, everything I was trying to describe to you a few moments ago, you've been buried with Christ, you've been baptized with Christ, therefore reckon yourself dead because you're with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, your sinful, fleshly man is dead. If you have died with Christ, to the elementary principles of the world. If that phrase sounds familiar, it's because back in verse 8, Paul has already defined it for us. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Remember, I defined Gnosticism as theology influenced too much by philosophy. But see to it that no one takes you captive through that kind of thinking and philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. So he's already set up the contrast between the elementary principles of this world and the principles of Christ. And he said, when people try to put their traditions on you, when they try to put their philosophical notions on you. They're taking you captive, but they're also trying to cheat you out of your reward. And so don't let that happen. A couple weeks ago, I pounded away at this. Don't let that happen. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deception, and according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of this world. So now we know what the elementary principles of this world are. They're the traditions and the thinking and the philosophy of human beings on this planet, separate from God, separate from Christ. I believe that I have told you before, the core of all 
Greco-Roman philosophy is how do you explain the meaning of life without God? If you take God out of the equation, then how do you explain human life? Why we're here? What's the purpose? What's the meaning of life? That's all part and parcel of the elementary principles of this world. And Paul has said, don't be captive to that. Be captive to Christ. Because if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if living in this world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch? Now, it is a fact that in the law there were rules like don't touch, don't touch a dead body, that'll make you unclean. There were several things that you could do to make yourself ceremonially unclean and then you couldn't enter the temple or participate in the worship of God in the temple until you had been cleansed again. Also, there were things that you just weren't able to eat. There were foods that you could not eat. But what Paul is very obviously saying in verse 21 doesn't have so much to do with those legal requirements of the Old Testament because in verse 22 he's going to say that these are in accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men. So he starts this description by calling it the elementary principles of this world and then he defines them as being in accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men. So that gives you some sense of what he's talking about when he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, he's talking about the man-made, creative, philosophical, slash theological notions of how you ought to act in order to live up to the standard they are imposing on you. And boy, churches are good at that. And I say that lovingly as a member of the church. As a historic church person, as a person who grew up in church, I like church. I have great fondness for church. But man, church today is a mess. It still belongs to Christ. He's still building his church. He's still shaking out his church at this very moment. But church has been infiltrated with so many of the traditions and the thoughts and the philosophies of men Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, you teach as doctrine the traditions of men. That was one of his accusations against them, that they were taking the notions, the creative ideas of mere mortals and making those equal with the very word of God. That's a tremendous amount of hubris to think that what you think and what you can come up with is somehow equal with what God requires. And I can't begin to list to you all the traditions of men that I've seen and grown up with through my years in the church. I'm sure you can all think of some. If you've been in the church any time at all, you've thought of some. There are a whole denominational organizations based on the traditions of men. Then they blame the Holy Spirit or they say they got some revelation, which Paul says is Gnostic. And they have visions of things they didn't really see and then teach as doctrine the traditions of men, the things that men are making up. So Paul summarizes all of those rudimentary principles of the world, all of those commandments and teaching of men, he sums them up as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Don't, don't, don't. In other words, I'll tell you what to do. In the 20 years that I've stood here at this pulpit, I've just kind of implemented a couple rules for myself because... I do come out of traditional church. And there were just things that I wasn't willing to participate in anymore. And one of those things was I wasn't going to chase people 
and I wasn't going to lord it over people like I needed to come to your house and tell you what to do. I come out of a church that used to have to approve who married who. I come out of a church that used to tell you, I'm not joking, how, what job you should have, how you should conduct your marriage and raise your children. And once I even saw them instruct somebody on how to cut their lawn. I'm not joking. That kind of legalism is the tradition of men that Paul is talking about when he says, they're going to tell you what not to handle and what not to taste and what not to touch. Okay, now here's the balance again. If we just concentrate on this, if we just concentrate on no one's going to defraud me, nobody's going to judge me, Nobody's going to impose the elementary principles on me. I'm not going to stand for don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. I'm not going to listen to the commandments and the teaching of men. If we just concentrate on that, we'll forget that the same Paul is about to say, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. There's a balance to be had. Don't listen to the traditions of men, but listen hard and cling to and behave according to the word of God. Amen. The contrast exists. You are not under any obligation to listen to what Jim tells you to do. If I came to your house, Kenneth, and started telling you how you ought to raise your kids, and I'm not talking biblically at all. I'm saying, oh, I would never let him do that. Oh, I wouldn't let him talk to me that way. Start acting like I'm disappointed in your fathering ability. You're going to throw me out of your house. And you have every right to throw me out of your house. Because I don't have that kind of authority. Look, when I'm teaching you the word of God, I'm as close to right as I ever get. Provided I'm actually teaching the very word of God. Out of this pulpit with my Bible closed, I'm no more right than the rest of you. You get it? So my thoughts cannot become God-type dictates. They can be my opinion. And even Paul takes the time a, a couple of times in his writing to say, okay, this isn't the Lord, this is me. I'm going to offer you my judgment here, my opinion here. But it's not the Lord. So even he differentiates between this is the very word of God and, well, I'll give you my considered opinion. So if you come to me and say, what is your considered opinion about this? I'll give it to you. I got an opinion on stuff. But that is not the same as the word of God, which is definitional to who you are as a Christian living in this present evil age. See the difference? Mm -hmm. And Paul makes that difference. I want to point out the categories here again, just so that you can see it clearly. First, starting at verse 16, the law. But Christ took the law out of the way. Therefore, don't let anybody judge you according to the dictates of the law, because then they will be defrauding you of the reward, of the prize, of the freedom in Christ that you have received because they're happy in their self-abasement and they're willing to go and worship things like angels, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And they will tell you visions that they haven't seen. Okay, that's one category, the religious category. But then there's this other category, which is the philosophical sort of Gnostic egocentric category, the creativity of sinful men who will also try to put decrees on you. And don't live by their decrees. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Which things, Paul says in verse 22, which things are all referring to things that are destined to perish with the using. In other words... If I can talk you into genuflecting when I say genuflect, there's another reference to my religious history. 
But if I can get you to do something that seemingly is religious, but to do it because I said to, the minute you do it, it's over. You got no reward from God for it. You didn't get any extra heavenly credibility for doing it. There's no lasting eternal value to doing it. But I got you to do it. But the minute you did it, that was it. It has no other value. Which things, the handle not, the taste not, the touch not, which things refer to things that are destined to perish with the using? The minute it happens, it's over. You get no credit in heaven for it. Because it is in accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men. And then he says, these matters, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. Well, sure, I can make up some really good-sounding religious stuff. I've been around religion my whole life. I know what it looks like and what it sounds like. And I can make up some really good religious stuff. And so it will look like it has an appearance of wisdom. I attended a church one time. One time! I attended a church. I walked out of a church. One time. Same church. Where the pastor was railing, railing against women wearing slacks. And he actually had somebody at the door with a ruler measuring how high their hems were. Of course, he was dressed to the teeth, you know, and wearing gold watch chain and everything else, you know, railing against women with their braided hair and their eye colors and their makeup and their... Oh. Meanwhile, he's looking like a thousand bucks, you know. So these are matters that have, Paul says, to be sure, they have the appearance of wisdom. There were people in that room that he had convinced that he was right in what he was saying because it appeared right, because he was the best lit, loudest guy in the room. He was the one behind the pulpit. He was the one who was laying out his dictates, and that had an appearance of religiosity to it. And so there were people who would fall in line with his dictates. So Paul says these matters have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and in self-abasement and in severe treatment of the body. This is why Jesus said, when you fast, wash your face, anoint yourself, and don't make it look like you're fasting. Because if you're out looking like you're, you're weak so that people will say, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting. Fasting to the Lord. Well, then you're drawing attention to yourself by the fact that you're trying to look like you're fasting. And so Paul says, yeah, that's severe treatment of your body. And so that might appear to people to be a religious positive thing you're doing. Because you're abasing yourself. Oh, poor me. Self-abasement means acting falsely humble. Oh, poor me. Has anybody here ever read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? One of the really insightful things that Lewis said in that book, the uncle is teaching the younger demon how to keep people befuddled in their religion and keep them away from Christ. And he talked about false humility. And he talked about the aged aunt, I think it was, or the aged grandmother, who would say things like, oh, don't fuss over me. I don't need anything, just the slightest little slip of bread. Just If you could just cut off the crust around the side. I just need the least little bit of tea. In other words, she's saying, me, 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 I need, go through the extra work of getting me bread and cutting off the thing. Serve me, but I'm going to do it in such a way that I look really, really humble. And so that kind of self 
abasement, that very obvious, oh, poor me, don't worry about me. Oh, don't think about me, I'm just buffering my body. I'm just. Paul says, sure, it's going to have that appearance. It's going to look like that. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, that woman I just talked about, oh, don't worry about me. I just need the least little thing. She's constantly indulging her flesh. She hasn't stopped that fleshly passion, that fleshly desire. She hasn't stopped that fleshly ego. She hasn't stopped any of that. She's just given the appearance that she's religious, that she's extra humble, when in fact she's still giving in to all her fleshly egocentric desires. Because, get this right, the solution to you can't be you. How often have you heard me say that? The solution to your fleshly sinfulness, to your egocentric desires, for your desire to be considered the center of the universe by everybody else around you, that kind of thinking, the solution to your fleshly, sinful, egocentric pride cannot be you abasing yourself in a public religious way so that everybody else can go, ooh, look how good you're doing. In the end, you're still stuck in your fleshly, sinful, prideful, arrogant body. And you've solved nothing. You've accomplished nothing where your flesh is concerned. The only solution to your fleshly problem has to be Christ. That's why, Paul says, you're complete in him. He has to sanctify you. He has to separate you. And that process goes on for the rest of your life and is not fully accomplished until you lay this body down in death. And then he's going to raise you in a new body. Won't it be nice to be able to worship God in genuine spirit and truth without your sinful, depraved, stupid little head making you think of the things you don't want to think about, which always seem to come back, at least in my case, when I'm deep in prayer. I heard a preacher one time say, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to take me to hell forever. I liked that phrase because it was an honest assessment of how bad our human condition, our fleshly prideful condition actually is. So you're kidding yourself if you think that you're going to do enough religious things, you're going to follow enough dictates of the imagination of men that you're going to clean yourself up to the degree where God is going to accept you on the basis of how high your hemline was or whether you wore a tie to church. Oh, I did. Yeah, close. You're in so much trouble. Or whether through the abasement of your body, the holding down of your flesh, Like, that's going to solve your problem. I don't know how much you know about the history of the church, but there are stories of monks who used to boil themselves in oil in the attempt to stop their sexual desire. It didn't work, but they did it because they wanted to hold their flesh down. All that is is proof that you can't do it because you're working with corrupted tools. You're working with your corrupted flesh to try to fix your corrupted flesh. That's like going to the refrigerator, finding spoiled milk and saying, I'll put this back in. Maybe it'll be good later. I'll I'll check it later. No, it's no good now. It's always going to be no good, and that can't be your solution to fresh milk. Same deal. Your fleshly body is so corrupt that the solution to your fleshly body can't be your fleshly body. You get it? 
You can't fix a broken hammer with that broken hammer. You can't fix broken stuff with broken stuff. Okay, I have over elucidated what Paul has said here, but now let's read that whole section and let's see if it doesn't make sense now that we've talked through it. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things that are destined to perish with the using in accordance to the commandments and the teaching of men. And these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You get the argument now? Mm -hmm. Okay, then chapter 3 starts. Again, referring to the fact that we are buried with Christ, so we reckon ourselves dead, but then we're also raised with Christ. We are raised to walk in newness of life. So if then you have been raised up with Christ, chapter 3, verse 1 says, then keep seeking the things which are above. Okay, he's just talked about earthly, man-made, self-made religion, self-abasement, treatment of the body. That's all the rudiments of this world. So he says, stop thinking about the rudiments of this world. You've died to the rudiments of this world. Instead, if you're raised with Christ to newness of life, then keep on seeking. This is a continual thing. It's in the present tense. It's just do this all the time. Do this constantly. Don't mix it with some other worldly stuff. Just do this by itself all the time. Keep seeking the things which are Above Now, that little Greek word is anno. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus back in John 3, we've talked about the fact that when he said, you need to be born again, that's the word anothen. So a better translation of it is, you need to be born from above, which is exactly what the word anothen means. Well, this is that root word, anno. Just like you need to be born from above, that's where your regeneration, your rebirth comes from. Well, then if that's why you are raised to this newness of life, because you've been born from above, then constantly think about the things which are from above. If you have questions about why we're here and what the meaning of life is, think about those things that are above. If you have questions about what's appropriate, righteous behavior. Pay attention to the things that are above. If you have pain in your life, if you have troubles in your life, and you've got to find a way out, pay attention to what's above. That's where all solutions come from. That's where all answers to the great eternal questions come from. That's what all philosophy and man-made religion bows to, is those things that are above. So set your mind, since your flesh is dead, set your mind to those things that are above and keep looking there. Keep seeking things which are anno, above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about that. Set your mind on things which are above, and then he contrasts it with this word. In English letters, that's the entire word, gay. It means the earth. Are you familiar with this Greek word? Graphe? Graphe means writing. So if you're writing about gay, the earth, it's geography. Mm -hmm. So we still use that word to this day. 
I'm hoping that that will help you understand what Paul is saying here in his contrast. All the things that are on the earth, which are decaying, wearing out, dying, which are ultimately going to burn, that can't be the solution to your eternal problem. And so set your mind on those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind there and not on the things that are of this entire system that we know as the earth. That's why he refers to the elementary principles of this world. The elementary principles of this world and this reference to gay, the earth, are the same thing. You can spend the whole rest of your life concentrating on the politics of this world, concentrating on the troubles, the trials, the stupidity of this world, and then die, and you've gotten no closer to God. You have no relationship with God, even though you've spent your whole life reading the philosophy of men. You can have a doctorate in philosophy, and I don't know what you do for a job then. What, you just hang out a shingle somewhere and say, philosopher available? I, I don't know what you do with that. But you can spend your whole life pursuing the science of this world and die and know nothing about God. Or you can spend your life thinking about the things which are above and not really know that much about this world, its philosophy, the politics, and the trials of this world. But if you know God, you know the one thing that eternally matters. If you have a relationship with God, you're going to be eternally secure from the wrath of God. So, what's better? Given those two options, Paul says, set your mind on these things which are above because the things of this earth are running down and decaying and ultimately going to burn. So don't set your mind on these things which are of the earth. Why? He's going to say it again. Verse 3, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love the way the Bible talks about you live by dying. We know those kinds of phrases as paradoxes. We even came up with a word for them. But the Bible is very comfortable with paradox. You get by giving you go up by going down. You get the chief seat by taking the low seat. And here, you live by dying. You have died. When you were baptized, when you went under the water in the likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then you reckon yourself to have died in your flesh. And your life, your zoe, your ever-living life, is all wrapped up in Christ, who is with God. If you're somebody who Christ is not ashamed to call brother, if you're that intimately loved by Christ, if you are wrapped up in the worship and the grateful praise of Christ, then you are worshiping and praising the one who is always acting as your intercessor when you do sin in this body. And he is seated at the right hand of God. He is intimately connected to God himself. And so Paul is trying to draw the equation or the contrast between the stuff of this world which is physical and fleshly and egocentric and decaying and being one with Christ, who is with God, and your life is hidden in him. And even though you're not yet reaping the eternal benefits of being one with him, Paul then says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Amen. So I'm going to go with Worth it. Yes. Completely worth it to concentrate on things which are above 
so that you have died in your flesh. And because you have died in your flesh and raised in newness of life, you're then walking with Christ. You are then hidden in Christ. And he is one with God. And he's going to be revealed. He's going to come back. He's going to uncover himself. And when he does, don't you want to be with him? Because in the book of Revelation, it says that when he returns, after the sun and the moon and the stars go dark, after the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens, so brightly, so vastly, that it says it's like the lightning that shines from the east to the west. Everybody on the planet's going to see it. And they're going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth. And they're going to cry to the rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. He's back and he's angry. Okay, which side of that equation you want to be on? You want to be on the side where when he's revealed, you're revealed with him in glory. When he returns, he returns with the ten thousands of his saints. Oh, that's the camp I want to be in. That'll make you sing when we all get to heaven. We'll sing and shout the victory. You see why we sang that this morning? We're going to be shouting all the way back because we're with our hero. We're with our captain. We're with the conquering king. And we're not running for the rocks and the caves and the den and saying, fall on us and hide us from him. Okay, so knowing all that, and I almost hate to say this, but that was kind of all introduction. But now that we know all that, Paul can say, verse 5, therefore. And whenever he says therefore, it's because He's basing what's coming on what he's already said. When we were buried in baptism, we were buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and his resurrection. Therefore, we are dead in our flesh, but we are raised in newness of life. And so our minds ought to be wrapped up in things that are above, in Christ who is with God, and then when he returns, we will be revealed with him. Therefore, knowing all that, what should you be like? You got it? Because that's your inspiration for how to act. Now, Paul is once again going to lay out two categories of how not to be. The first category is going to be all about feelings and emotion, internal stuff. And then behavioral stuff that results from your emotions and your internal wrong thinking. So he says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. I said that an hour ago. Reckon yourself to be dead. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And then he lists specific things that are common to all human beings. And the way to defeat these things is to realize that the body of flesh that you're defending through these things is dead. And how dare you? Now, how dare you lift yourself up to the point where you start thinking, yeah, but me, my flesh, it's all about me. I have every right to act like this with you. Who are you? If you're in Christ, you're dead. Get over yourself. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Number one, to immorality. It's pornaya. You should know that word by now. It's a word that has a pretty wide berth of meaning, everything from harlotry to adultery to incest. God even likens it to idolatry. And so it's sometimes translated as fornication, but it means all kinds of thought processes in your head that start craving 
immoral things. Secondly, impurity. Akatharsia is the Greek word. You don't need necessarily to remember that. But in the Old Testament, there were purity laws. In other words, you had to keep yourself ceremonially clean. And that's the essence of what this word means. It's clean with the alpha negative on the front of it. You're unclean. It's a quality of internal impurity or uncleanness morally. Third, passion. You know this word. It's pathos. We pronounce it in the English language as pathos. What it means is actually to have suffering in your life, suffering that causes you to have tremendous reaction and emotion. But in the way Paul's using it here, he's talking about inordinate affection or lust. And so he's saying, consider yourself dead to the lusts of your flesh. Third, evil desire. Those two words are a single Greek word, which I think I referred to just a few weeks ago, epithemia which is a longing for what you just can't have. It's a longing for what is forbidden. God has said this is not part of your life, and you want it, and you lust for it, and you crave for it. In fact, in the King James, every once in a while, you'll see the word concupiscence. That's a good old English word that we don't use anymore. My goodness, did you see the concupiscence of that guy? You know, we just we don't say that anymore. But that's what it means. It means to have desire and lust for forbidden things. You're dead to that. Greed, even though the Greek word is pleonexia, it means greed. And using anything to accomplish your greedy desires, like defrauding people, extorting money out of people, being covetous, and then practicing that covetousness. That's greed. And then he follows it up with idolatry. Let's see if you could have figured that word out from the Greek word, because the Greek word is idolatria. Latria, which is worship. Worship of an idol. Idolatria. So it is the worship of idols. Okay, now... Paul lists all of those things because they were present not only in Colossae, but they're present among human beings. That is the natural character of fleshly human beings to have all these strong, immoral emotions and then to act on them. And so that's his next list is the actual actions. But in verse 6... He says, you consider yourself dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, and idolatry because it is on account of those very things that the wrath of God once came and will come again. Once upon a time, the children of Israel had to deal with the wrath of God because they acted like this, and God is returning in judgment because people act like this. And so if you know that it's the wrath of God against these things, why, as people who profess Christ, why would you walk those things out in this life, in this world? Because you're acting just like the world, and you're not supposed to have your mind set on this world. Your mind is supposed to be set on things that are above. Therefore, you wouldn't be like this. Therefore, be different. You see Paul's argument? In them, he's willing to admit, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. That's very Ephesians 2. It's the exact same thing. We don't have time to go look at it. I know now that the clock is ticking against me and I'm on borrowed time. I'm aware of it, but I don't care. It's my birthday. Okay, so since I've said that, okay, turn to Ephesians 2 for just a minute. Ephesians 2, right at verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Does that all sound familiar? Now we know what Paul's talking about in Colossians, the rudiments, the elementary principles of this world. 
And he says, you all used to be like this. You all walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. So if they act that way, and you are in Christ, you wouldn't act that way. Paul says, this is how you used to be. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in them, back in Colossians 3, verse 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But also, on top of the list he just gave you of things to put off and reckon as dead, but now you also put all these aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Those are pretty good translations, and I will try not to belabor these points. Anger is orge, which more properly means to reach for something, to try to grasp something. But by analogy, it means this kind of violent passion. In his first list, he said, don't give in to passion, pathos, inordinate affection. Because once you do give in to it, it will manifest itself into the sin of anger, which is a violent passion. So it starts with the thought internally, but then it manifests in the flesh physically, and you act in anger. Wrath is thumos, and it means fierceness. It means the indignation, and especially when talking of God, we're talking about fierce indignation of God. You don't have the right outside of your own fleshly human ego, you don't have the right to impose your wrath on other people. How much ego does it take for you to start thinking they deserve for me to be angry all over them and wrathful all over them? You don't have that right. Consider yourself dead to it. Malice, naughtiness is a good equitable word there to use. Because it means wickedness that then manifests itself in the way it treats other people. There is a phrase in publishing known as absence of malice. It's a legal term. What it means is you're able to prove that you wrote something really negative about somebody else, usually a public figure, but you didn't do it out of malice. You weren't trying to hurt them. You were just trying to report about it. Okay, so that concept of malice means that you have in your heart and in your actions the desire to hurt someone else because of the wickedness within you. And then blasphemia, you know that word. And slander, that's the vilification of anybody else, especially God, when you're speaking evil, when you're railing against God. That is blasphemy. And abusive speech is the single Greek word that I always struggle to pronounce correctly. Ahiskrologia. Wow, that was pretty darn close. Yeah. <laughs> and what it means is vile conversation. Filthy communication out of your mouth. Why? Because you had filthy thoughts. You started with your filthy evil desires, your concupiscence. And because you thought evil, ugly, dirty, mean-hearted, filthy things. It comes out of your mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you will speak that way because that's what your flesh is all about. Can you see now why Paul would say, that's dead. Don't, don't follow after that. Your evil flesh and the evil flesh of other people is going to lead you into all these sinful behaviors that are the things that God poured out his wrath for and will again. So therefore, stop it. Look, if you remember nothing else from this morning, if you go home and all you got out of this morning was cake, remember that Jim said, stop it. It's the best advice I got for you, right there. Just, just stop it. 
Here, we'll let Paul say it. He'll take more words to say it, but... Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you've put on a new self who is being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created you. A removal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. But Christ is all and Christ is in all. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on hearts of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also forgive. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Next week, we will pick up right around verse 11. Do you get the point that Paul is making here? Yes. I purposefully did belabor it this morning because I really want to just drill it into your forehead. I really want you to get Paul's understanding of what genuine Christianity is. It is faith in Christ who is our complete and utter Savior, but then it is also the behavior that befits a Christian. Both of those concepts are biblical. They do not contradict each other. They do not eliminate each other. Think on things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God and reckon your old fleshly self to be dead. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.